0: We are going to finish up 3rd John tonight, actually all the epistles of John, but we're going to be looking at 3rd John. Uh, it's only 14 verses, it's very short. Um, I want to start by saying this, all of us share an invaluable possession. It, it goes with us wherever we go, but amazingly, it, it goes where we do not go. And furthermore, what you think of this prized possession is not necessarily what others think of it. What I'm talking about is your reputation. Your reputation is the estimation or evaluation others have of your character, your integrity, your standing as a person. It may be good or bad, your reputation. It may be positive or negative. But just be assured of this. We all have a reputation. People people watch you and they talk about you. Count on it. Um, as you know, some probably talk about you more than others, but just count on it. People are watching you. They are going to talk about you. Uh, you, you cannot escape your reputation. You cannot lose your reputation. Now, your reputation can change over time, but, but your, your reputation precedes you. It goes with you. It follows you all of your life and beyond. And Charles Spurgeon, man who was known as the prince of preachers, he knew the importance of a reputation, especially for a Christian. This is what he wrote. He said, The eagle-eyed world acts as a policeman for the church. It becomes a watchdog over the sheep, barking furiously as soon as one goes astray. Be careful. Be careful of your private lives. And I believe your public lives will will be sure to be right. Remember, it is upon your public life that the verdict of the world will very much depend. So with that in mind... Uh, let me just raise three important questions for all, us to, all of us to think about. And this is kind of the overarching theme of tonight's study. But here's the three, three questions for you to think about. First of all, what do you think of yourself? Second, and this is a tricky one. What do you believe others think about you? Now, that's a tricky one because sometimes we believe incorrectly what other people think of us. But then the third one, and this is the most important of all, is that is, what does God think of you? The, the shortest book in the Bible, the letter of 3 John, is, is very helpful, helpful for us in, in assisting us to reflect on these three questions. Now, like First and 2 Timothy, Titus and Philemon, 3 John is actually written to an individual. In this case, it's written to a man named Gaius. Uh, Eusebius, uh, the ancient church historian, says that this letter was was written after the apostle John was released from the rock quarry island of Patmos on the Aegean Sea and if that's correct then third John may have been the very last book written in the New Testament the book is very similar in length and style to its twin second John but there are some important differences as well third John revolves around four key men and their reputations and whereas second John mentions no one by name In 2 John, the the problem was showing hospitality to the wrong visitors. And in 3 John, the problem is not showing hospitality to the right visitors. In 2 John, the major concern was truth. And in 3 John, the major concern is love. And it's, it's really easy in this letter. One easy way to organize it is to outline the book biographically around the four men of the letter. And that's what we're going to do tonight. And as we look at each one of them, Continue to examine yourself to see if there's some uh, anyone here that looks something like you. And ask yourself a very important question. Does my life bring praise to the name of Jesus? Do, do I live out Matthew five sixteen, which is where Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do I live my life in such a way that other people... Can see the, the good works, the things that the my faith being worked out in in uh, my public life in such a way that they look at my life and give glory to God. That's the question uh, that we that we're trying to answer tonight. So let's look at the first man. The first man is named Gaius. Uh, let's read verses one through eight. The elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health. And that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It, it was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people, so that me, we may work together for the truth. So, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we started Second John, you'll remember that the letter here, Third John, begins very in very much the same way as Second John, because he identifies the author as someone known, just simply known as the elder. Now we're gonna not gonna get into. If you want to know, uh, if you want to refresh yourself about why we know that's John, you can go back and listen to the introduction, uh, introductory material from Second John. But, but that word "elder" originally meant an older man, uh, but uh, it, it later, over time, came to convey ideas of respect and authenticity and integrity. Uh, an elder is a man of courage and commitment and conviction. He's a man of authority rooted in his spiritual maturity. And we know that the apostle John was such a man. And and be, because he had such a tender relationship with this man named Gaius, there was no need for him to assert his apostleship. Uh, he, he loved him dearly and he didn't need to uh, lord it over him in any way and say, hey, this is, don't forget, I'm an apostle. He didn't feel the need to do that. And John commends Gaius in four areas of his life. And these are areas in which we also should seek to excel after, since we have come to a saving relationship with Christ. And the first thing I want you to notice about Gaius is that his spiritual life was healthy. He was was healthy in his soul, in his spirit. Uh, Four times, John will address Gaius, the recipient of of the letter, as dear friend. And doing that expresses deep, heartfelt love for this man. John loved this man, and he told him. But he also knew that, that Gaius' spiritual life was in good health, and he told him that as well, that he knew where he stood with the Lord. How could he know that? Well, some of the things that he said in previous letters, uh, and it varies, very similar to what Jesus taught, by your fruits you will know by their fruit, you will know them. So he could look at his life and the way he was living, the reports he was getting. He was confident that he was in a good place spiritually. Um, now, I will say this, this man Gaius, uh, that was a very common name in, in that day. And there are several men uh, by that name that appear in the New Testament. Three particularly, there's a man named Gaius of Corinth. You can read about him in Romans 16, 23. There was a man named Gaius from Macedonia, and that's Acts 19:29. And then there was a man named Gaius in Derby, Acts 20 verse four. Now, a very few, not very many commentators say that maybe this was the Gaius of Derby, but the, it's actually probably not the case. The, it was such a common name. It would be like hearing, you know uh, somebody named Joe. And you read about another Joe and say, that's got to be the same Joe, you know, it's just too common of a name. So it's probably none of those. All we know, though, of this Gaius is what we learn from, from this short letter. And what we learn is really pretty amazing, pretty astounding. Um, John's love for Gaius is genuine. He, he he's, he's accompanied by truth. He used that, he loves him in the truth seven different times. There's nothing false or superficial here. He, he just loves this man truly. In fact, you, you could render that phrase um, that, he, uh, uh, that he loves him in the truth. You could, that could be rendered. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be grammatically incorrect to render it. I, I truly love you. So, um, so the, the, the I in the verse is emphatic, which he's saying, I myself love you in the truth. He's very, very, being very emphatic with this, expressing his love to, to Gaius. And because of this great love that he has, he's praying for him. See, that's the thing. If you love somebody, you're going to pray for them. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, this Sunday, we're going to be talking about prayer in our lives as Christians. And if you really do love someone, you're going to pray. So John, having this great love for Gaius, he is praying for him in the verb that's used. He's continually praying for Gaius. To continually prosper in every way, and and to be in good health physically, just as you are spiritually, he says. Now that's interesting because you remember one of the one of the main things that John had been writing to the churches uh, was to combat uh, Gnosticism, which was the belief that anything physical was evil, so your body was evil. Well, it's interesting because John here, what he's praying for goes. It's, an, it's, an, uh, it's directly opposite of that belief because he's saying, I want your body to be healthy. It does matter. You see that? It's interesting because he's praying that he wants it. He wants him to be healthy. Uh, it, it's the opposite of the separation of spirit and manner that, and, and, and the, that idea that despised physical life. What we do know is that God is concerned both for body and spirit. Well, if you could even say all three—body, soul, mind—or body, soul, mind, or body, soul uh, spirit. Uh, excuse me, body, spirit, mind, or body, spirit, soul. Uh, soul kind of related to mind and a seat of the emotions, and and it does matter. Um, God does care about our health. Now, there have been some that have taken this verse and they've kind of twisted it, taken it out of context, and said context, and said that uh, that. For John to be praying that your, that your body prospers, that you prosper in your health, that you prosper in the same way your spirit prospers means that God automatically wants to give you everything that you want physically or in this world or whatever. But that's, that's not really what's happening here. This is a prayer that John is praying. This is not a statement of theology that God is making. This is John praying a prayer for someone he loves. And he says to him, basically... He's saying, I know you're doing great spiritually. I can see that. I hear the reports. And my prayer for you is that as well as you're doing spiritually, that you'll be blessed in every other way the same way. And that's a great prayer to pray, uh, to, to pray for someone. Gaius, he had a clean bill of health spiritually. Now, it may be that John was praying that because maybe he had some physical difficulty uh, maybe that's why he was praying, saying, hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And I pray that your, your body comes around and does as well as your spirit is. But, but the reality is, the bottom line is, his soul was in ship shape. It was in top condition. And, and I think a really in- interesting way to apply this uh, for, to our lives, it, it kind of naturally arises from this prayer. Let me ask you this question. What if I were to pray for you and ask God to bless you physically to the same degree that you are healthy spiritually? And what if he answered my prayer? What would happen in your life? Would you be fit or would you be sick and in bed and nearly dead? You know, I mean, would would we need to rush you to the emergency room and then, you know, then have you ushered into the ICU or the CCU or something like that? You know, and that's a, that's a really kind of a good way for us to look at it and say, wait a minute. You know, if my body reflected the state of my spirit and my relationship with God right now, how healthy would I be? And maybe that's a good way for us to begin to measure where we are with the Lord and 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 uh, take a, a measurement, a yardstick of what's going on. Gaius was soul healthy, and, and and the life of Christ was vibrant and alive in him, and the same. Uh, life is ours, and, and we enjoy the blessings and benefits we have in Christ. The second thing about Gaius is that he was walking truthfully. He was walking in the truth. John, John said he, he could be very glad and, and, and have no greater joy because of what others were telling him about Gaius. He, he specifically said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, when he uses my children, he, he that may indicate, because he's obviously talking about the, re, the, the report about Gaius, and he says, I have no greater joy when I, than when I hear my children are walking in the truth. So the implication is that Gaius is one of his children, and so it may indicate, probably does indicate, that John actually led Gaius to the Lord, and that he, in a sense, is sort of a spiritual father to him. And w- we know that John was fathering spiritual children, in a sense, into the kingdom of God, and, and, and Gaius was a child of his in whom he took great delight. And you know, here's the thing about that, is that any parent, whether, whether uh, natural or spiritual, you can instantly identify with John's statement when he said, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Because as a parent, listen, what could cause any greater joy than seeing your children in love with God and serving Him and walking with Him on a daily basis? There is there's nothing There's nothing you could tell me about anything or any person or even my children that's going to bring me greater joy than me hearing somebody say, man, you know, your child is really walking in the truth of the gospel. I can see your child really loves Jesus. That's what really matters. That's the greatest joy. And it's not just true of my natural children. But you know what? I mean, I think back, you know, I was in youth ministry for a lot of years long time I don't even know how many close to 20 years really what I was working with youth and uh, a matter of fact a few weeks ago we had someone from one of our youth uh, ministries in Twin Falls Idaho show up here they're living in Tennessee and they came to surprise us and he's serving the Lord and just doing great and when I see that or I see Facebook posts from from kids that are not my kids physically but they are my kids they're not kids anymore either you know I mean they're full-grown adults you know I'm I, like you know I turned 60 today and so yeah I be, I, but my mind thinks everybody else's is, everything is still back a few years ago you know and so I think of these kids and I think of them as high school and you know some of them I think have their own grandkids by now you know it's just but when I when I read the reports and when I see you know Jay Johnson when he was here when I see these things Man, there's such joy that fills my heart because I, I think to myself, first of all, it, it's gratifying to me because I begin to realize, okay, I didn't waste my time. God, God did use me. And there's a joy, even with our spiritual children, people that, that we have helped mentor and help disciple when we know that they're, they're uh, living in the truth. And, and the truth we know was in Gaius, and he lived out what he believed. That's that's the real key of it. In doctrine and in deed, Gaius was commendable, praiseworthy, and he was a joy to his brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, there was no contradiction between his profession, that is his talk, and his practice, his walk. What he said, how he spoke, was how he lived. That is the definition, by the way, of integrity integrity the 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 word actually has the idea of a unifiedness you, you that's not a real word but i just made it up but it's a it's an I, the idea of being unified like if a bridge has integrity what that means is all the pieces are holding together the way they're supposed to therefore the whole thing stands up right like remember how many remember you know, when the, when the uh, bridge was shut down and all the traffic was going the other way and they shut it down, it was a nightmare. Everybody remembers that. Um, but they shut it down because with that crack, that meant that there was at least one piece that had lost integrity. And with one piece losing integrity, it can affect all the other pieces. And so the whole may not hold together. This is exactly the picture of integrity in our lives. It's that all the pieces of our lives fit together properly and because all the different pieces fit together our lives will hold up that's the idea behind integrity and and the whole point is is that what i say and what i believe matches how i live that's that's the whole concept here no contradiction and that's really important for us to remember because you know can i just tell you this if we don't live it out this, I'm going to say this, I'll qualify it a little bit. But if we don't live this out, then it really doesn't matter what you believe. Now, it does matter for your salvation, but it doesn't matter to anybody else. If you don't live it out, then your coworker who doesn't know Christ, it, they don't care. It, does make, it makes no difference to them what you believe. But if you live it out, then they can see that you, what you believe. Because people cannot see your heart, but they can see your life. So, so walk, uh, live out day by day the gospel truth that's in you by virtue of your union with Christ. Another way is, like Jesus said, to abide in Him. And if we abide in Him, we will bear much fruit. That fruit is the actions of our life. Okay, the next thing, Gaius was, he was serving faithfully. John commends Gaius, I keep saying it different ways, but just pick your way and listen to it the way I, no matter how I say it. But John commends Gaius, and he says, "He says, dear friend, you are showing faithfulness. What, what was he doing? How was he showing faithfulness? Well, it seems from the context and everything that he talks about in the whole letter, that Gaius was, was showing hospitality and he was entertaining brothers Uh, who were traveling missionaries for Jesus sent from John. So these were strangers. They were people he did not know. Uh, And and John knew of Gaius's service because these men, these missionaries, these traveling teachers, when they would come back to John and they'd give a report, they testified of Gaius's love in front of the church. So they'd come back in front of the whole church. They would say, man, we got to tell you about this man, Gaius. We, we want to We got to, got to tell you the way he loved us, the way he took care of us. God's using him in great ways in that church. And that's what they did. So John was he was filled with joy hearing the secondhand reports about what God was doing and how he was using this man. And so John responds to that in a very natural way. He, he just encouraging him, he encouraged him. I'll just paraphrase what he says in verse six. He says, keep on doing what you're doing. He says, keep up the good work. That's the idea behind it saying, saying, keep, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing fantastic. Even these men, when they come back, they're telling the whole church about how you're living and what you're doing. So sensitive to the hospitality expectations of the ancient Near Eastern world, which maybe one another time we'll go into more detail on that because hospitality was not just something nice to offer. It was really a cultural expectation in, in their world. But but living in that world, he he had received these traveling teachers into his home. And in providing lodging and food and money and encouragement and prayer, and in standing with them, even though they were strangers, Gaius had honored God, he had honored the gospel, and he'd honored the apostle John. His faithful service stands in striking contrast to the inhospitable diatrophies, which whom we will meet in just a few moments in verses 9 and 10 third thing about Gaius is that he was ministering generously. The, the traveling missionaries did not ask for support for, from non-believers, uh, as we read there in a moment ago, and that was because they didn't want anyone questioning their motives for preaching. Now, that wasn't just out of nowhere. It was because it was a very common sight in the ancient Roman Empire to see these vagrants, these traveling teachers who travel around peddling their gods to people and begging from, uh, for money from anyone and everyone. And they were doing it as a way to just simply make money. They didn't care about gods. They were just selling these things because, you know, it was a very pagan world. They believed in many gods. And so they'd say, let me tell you about this God. You know, it's like the, the the Old West, uh, the, the the guy traveling around with with the uh, serum, you know, to, to, that cures everything. Well, that's kind of what was happening, but they were selling gods instead of, instead of those things. And, and the Christian missionaries were very, very careful not to appear that way. They didn't want, they wanted them, didn't want their motives questioned. They didn't want people to say, oh, well, you're only preaching because you're making money off of us. They, they depended, and rightly so, on the generosity and the gifts of the church in the city where they were, where they were staying. And in so doing, they avoided the scandal of other traveling teachers who sort of prided themselves on fleecing the countryside. Now, the the modern application for for missionary hospitality, I think, for us needs to be widened because hospitality today does not mean what it once did. You know, when we have missionaries uh, come to to Marion, they're not looking to stay in somebody from the church's home. We put them up someplace else. It's a whole different scenario. It's it's not like it was back in those days. And so I think when we think about hospitality, we have to find ways to widen it and and find ways to make application to our lives. And and so while it may be, you know, very useful to house visiting missionaries, there there are several other ways that believers today can become partners in mission. Because think about this. Remember, in 2 John, John told them, Don't open your home. Don't show hospitality to false teachers, because if you do, you're partnering with them in their evil work. Remember that? All right. Well, let's take the principle and apply it the other way. When you do offer hospitality to to, uh, these missionaries, these true teachers of the gospel, then you are taking part in their good work. You see that? And so that's that's really the idea behind here. So we need to ask ourselves then if that's what hospitality did was was partnering with them, helping them fulfill their mission. Then how can believers today become partners in mission? Well, the the most obvious way is to to, to partner in missionary work is to, you know, do missionary work to go do it. Uh, But but that's. You know, that's one way to do it, but that's not really what the elder is talking about here. What John is talking about in third John, his immediate concern is that Gaius would be a partner to those who are doing the missionary work. So uh, it's that kind of partnership that supports mission rather than doing the work personally. And of course, believers should always consider doing missionary work. They should... Always listen for God. If God says, hey, I want you to go to the mission field. We need to listen. We need to do what he says. That's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But what I'm saying is for this context, let's let's just think more about supporting mission uh, since that's what the the elder, what John is really talking about here. So let's go to the second way. The the next most obvious way to partner with missionary work. I think we all can figure this one out. It's to offer financial support, right? And for millions of Christians, financial support of missions, it's just simply a part of their giving budget. It's just something we do without even thinking. It's just part of what we do because we know we believe in it. It's just who we are. But for others, this kind of giving is is not a priority. It's something they don't even think about. And, And sadly, missionaries are often pressed to raise the needed support uh, in order to fulfill their mission, but that need not necessarily be the case. In 2004, KP Johannan cited the statistic that the average American Christian gives only one penny a day to global missions. One penny a day. Well, surely we can do better than 30 cents a month. You know? Uh, The the author, publisher, and missions promoter, Gordon Lindsay, he once wrote this. I'm going to read it to you. The main hindrance to world evangelism has not been for the want of devoted missionaries, nor is it the lack for trained nationals, which was a serious problem for many years. The hour has come when we have an eager army of gospel soldiers ready to launch out in faith and preach the apostolic gospel, and they are doing it. Nor is there any lack of people responding to the message. Any missionary will tell you that almost every place an evangelistic effort is attempted. Hundreds, and in many cases, even thousands will respond. Where then is the lack? It is in the lack of necessary financial assistance that often is not available at the moment the Spirit of God moves in a community. This would be the same idea, the same, what he's talking about there would be the same thing as if, Gaius and other Christians in the first century, when traveling missionaries came, they said, no, you can't stay here. They're, they're not supporting them. That's the idea. And, and it's very clear to Paul that, that in the matter of giving and receiving, the Philippians, you, you can read about them. And they are, in Paul's mind, they were famous givers. But, but Paul says that the Philippians made themselves genuine partners with him in the work of proclaiming the gospel. You can read that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 19. And he even, in verse 17 of that passage, anticipates that their generosity will lead to God adding credit, whatever that is, to their account. And, and perhaps one reason that, that uh, more Christians do not give to mission work is they, is they, they simply do not realize that their financial support constitutes genuine partnership in the work. That when I give to a missionary, it, it's, you know, if, if I could just see such a thing uh, 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 giving that sort of giving it less than less as supporting those who do the mission and begin to see it more as partnering with them in ministry, to realize that we are together in this thing that they're not the missionary and I, you know, called to do something, that we're both missionaries and we both have a job to do. And in order to reach that city, they go and I help support. And I am their partner in that. And and maybe if we understood that better, we would be more motivated to do our part. Let's go on. Another obvious way to partner in mission work is to pray. 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 I want to read to you uh, something from a book called On This Day. I, I have this book. It's by Robert J. Morgan. And uh, it's really a neat little book. It has 365 different uh, uh, little devotional type things, little stories. And each day it tells you about something in Christian history that happened that day. And and uh, I want to read to you one of these things, one of the accounts that he gives of the, the incredible history of a 100-year prayer meeting that spawned remarkable mission activity. Let me read what he he wrote. In 1722, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, troubled by the suffering of Christian exiles from Bohemia and Moravia, allowed them to establish a community on his estate in Germany. The center became known as, and I can't possibly say it the way a German would probably say it, but it became known as Herrnhut, meaning under the Lord's watch. It grew quickly and so did the the appreciation for the power of prayer. On August 27th, 1727, 24 men and 24 women covenanted to spend an hour each day in scheduled prayer, praying in sequence around the clock. Soon others joined the prayer chain. Days passed, then months. Unceasing prayer rose to God 24 hours a day as someone, at least one, was engaged in intercessory prayer every hour of every day. The intercessors met weekly for encouragement and to read letters and messages from their brothers in, in different places. A decade passed, the prayer chain continuing non-stop. Then another decade, it was a prayer meeting that lasted over a hundred years. Undoubtedly, this prayer chain helped birth Protestant missions. Zinzendorf, 27, suggested the possibility of attempting to reach others for Christ in the West Indies, Greenland, Turkey, and Lapland. Twenty-six Moravians stepped forward. The first missionaries, Leonard Dober and David Nitschman, were commissioned during during an unforgettable service on August 18, 1732, during which 100 hymns were sung. And you think we have long worship service. <laughs> um, 100 hymns were sung. During the first two years, 22 missionaries perished and two more were imprisoned, but others took their places. In all, 70 Moravian missionaries flowed from the 600 inhabitants of Hernhut, a feat unparalleled in missionary history. By the time William Carey became the father of modern missions, over 300 Moravian missionaries had already gone to the ends of the earth. And that's not all. The Moravian fervor uh, uh, sparked the conversions of John and, and Charles Wesley and indirectly ignited the great awakening that swept through Europe and America. The prayer meeting lasted 100 years. The results will last for eternity. See, in whatever way we can, Christians ought to partner in missionary work, whether through prayer, giving, hospitality, or, or by any other means. It is, it is working together as the body of Christ, each doing what we're called to do, serving where we're called to serve. See, see, here's what we forget sometimes. When we have a missionary speaker come, the reality is we didn't have a missionary come to speak to lay people. What we have is a missionary coming to speak to other missionaries. The difference is that missionary has been called to live in a different place. You've been called to live here. And, and, and as we get that, as we understand that, then uh, the, the, this, this whole idea of working together for the truth with those who, who go out for the sake of the name, as he said. Now, now we, we may not physically go where they go, but we can go with them anyway by our support, with our finances, with our prayers. All pray, all give support, some are sent but all are essential as we cooperate together for the work of God. It's well said, someone, I don't even know who said it first, but they said, there is no limit to how much good you can do if you do not care who gets the credit. God, multiply the sent. God, multiply the supporters. God, multiply the senders. Let's move on to the next man, a man named Diotrephes. Verses nine and 10. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. So all of a sudden, Third John, in this very short letter, just takes a surprising and unexpected turn. If Gaius... Ha, you know, had the right balance between belief and, and actions. A man by the name of Diotrephes did not. He, he was basically like Gaius's alter ego uh, at every turn uh, is the opposite. It was a man with harmful and destructive agenda. And the, the bottom line for Diotrephes was that he wanted to be the boss in the church. He wanted to be in control, he, 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 which, by the way, I, I've, I believe with my whole heart, anytime you hear about church division and problems in a church, whatever they say the issue is about, it's not about that issue. I think I really believe it always boils down to when there is a when there is an argument in the church and there's division in the church, it really always boils down to who's going to be in control. So when you're arguing about, when churches argue about the color of the carpet, it's not about the color of the carpet. It's about who gets to decide the color of the carpet. This is the disease of diatrophies. This is what, what he does. He loved himself, not others. He wanted his way. He didn't care what, what other people thought. And with perverted ambition and a dominating spirit, he opposed the Apostle John and set himself up as the as sort of the Lord of that church body where he was. And if anyone even took exemption, exception to his actions, if they called him on it, that person was censured and was actually dismissed from the congregation. Carnality personified. Diotrephes is mirrored today by many in the church who exhibit a similar lust for power. And and it's not just, it can be pastors, it can be deacons, it can be just people in the church. It doesn't matter who it is, but there are people who have sort of a Messiah complex that decide, I know what's best. I want what I want. This church is going to be this way. And they've taken their eyes off of Jesus and forgotten that he and he alone is their Lord and Savior. So just, just as... John commended Gaius in four areas. Now he condemns Diotrephes in four areas. The first thing he says is, do not be driven by prideful ambition. I want to say this before we talk about this. Understand this, the Bible never condemns having ambition. The Bible condemns having selfish ambition. I think it's a good thing to have godly ambition. I think it's a great thing to have kingdom ambition to say, I want to see God's kingdom grow bigger than ever to 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 have ambition to say, I want to be used by God to reach thousands of people. I think that's a great ambition. As long as, as long as it's not just spiritual language to couch the fact that you really have selfish ambition and you really want to be, be able to say, I want people to be able to talk about how great a evangelist. I am because I reached a thousand people. You see the difference? One is focused on other people seeing me doing, and the other one is actually focused on the kingdom. So, so don't be afraid of godly ambition, but always be on the guard for selfish ambition. And so Diotrephes had a very prideful ambition. John, John wrote a letter. We know this from, from verse 9 there. He says, I wrote to the church. He wrote a letter, and it was probably, this letter was probably a letter of commendation for these missionaries that he's been talking about. Now that letter is probably lost. Some people think maybe it was second John, but probably not. It's probably just another, you know, it wasn't it was it's not considered canon or scripture. God would have certainly preserved it if it was, but it was just a letter that he wrote to send with these missionaries to commend them to the to the church there. And then we don't have that letter. So but John's referring to this letter. And and this letter's reception met a problem in the person of Diotrephes who is mentioned only here in the New Testament. It's the only time you hear about Diotrephes. And we're told about him. He loves to be first. He loves to be first. So the issue here does not seem to be a doctrinal problem. This is the problem with Diotrephes is not like with the false teachers, apparently. Not possibly. It could have been. Maybe that's why he rejected the Apostle John. But we're not told that. But from everything we can see... There's no indication that it was a problem with doctrine, but it was a problem of personal pride. Diotrephes had an important position of some kind in the church, but he was blinded with pride. He was blinded with self-importance. And Diotrephes slandered John. He he cold-shouldered the missionaries, and he excommunicated the loyal believers because he loved himself, and he wanted to have the preeminence. He didn't want anybody looking to John for anything. He wanted to be the man. And, and, and perhaps he had no better reason for refusing to welcome these missionaries other than just simply that John was the one who, who had commanded it. See, the thing about self-love in an unhealthy way is that it destroys all relationships and narcissism destroys all relationships. If, if, I, if I focused on myself, and don't and I and I want what I want more than anything else, or what anybody else wants. That's going to destroy relationships. It's going to destroy marriages. It's going to destroy churches. That's just the nature of it. Uh, and, and personal vanity, uh, r- related to that idea of, of of control, lies at the root of, of almost all dissensions in every local church today. Because even the idea of control, it's it's really about a person of val- vanity saying. I'm the one who has the right answers. That's why I should be in control. So there's a pride issue related in that. And he, he Diotrephes loved being first. Numero uno, the captain of the ship, the CEO, the center of attention, the main attraction. But you know what Colossians 1.18 says? It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy only jesus is to have first place in everything amazingly Diotrophes took for himself the position that only jesus should hold and tragically that happens many times in today's world where people take for themselves a position only jesus should hold in fact i mean that's what we do that's that's what humanity does we, when, we, when we reject the lordship of Christ and say, I'm going to do what I want to do, what we're doing is we're taking the position that only Jesus should hold, that position of lordship. And it may be a, it may be a pastor, it may be a minister of worship, or a youth pastor, or a kids pastor. It could be a deacon. It could be a prominent layman. Or it could be a powerful or influential family. Uh, the, the, but we, you know, we don't know. It, we don't know who Diotrephes really was. But we do know that he was driven by prideful ambition. Second, he says, do not display pompous arrogance. Diotrephes would not accept John and his missionaries. Incredibly, he felt that the apostle John had nothing to offer, you know, nothing that he or the church needed. We don't need you, John. Get out of here. Don't come here. John was like old news. It was time for him to retire, move off off the scene. And, And such arrogance would have been culturally shameful And it is even to us today, spiritually shocking. I mean, think about this. Imagine you had a chance today to hear the apostle John speak to us, to come in here and say, I want to talk to you about what Jesus has planned for your life and the gospel and and the truth and love and all these things. Would you, would you look at him and say, no, we don't, we don't need to hear anything you, you have to say? Of course not. We'd be like, oh yeah, come on in. The apostle John, sure. But, but here, the older, wiser, wiser apostle was basically being kicked to the curb, and, and the arrogance of this behavior takes your breath away. Third, he says, do not deliver perverse accusations. John, John did not fear personal and public confrontation when the situation warranted it or demanded it. He said, if he comes, he said, and the implication, by the way, is, by the way, is that he will come, especially when you look later in the letter, uh, is he will confront Diotrephes, beginning with th- his perverse accusations. So what we know is, we don't know what, what he was saying, but Diotrephes was slandering with malicious words. He was talking trash. He was gossiping maliciously and with, with, with vicious and wicked intent. This was not something, a misunderstanding on Diotrephes' part. This was intentional that he was trying to tear down the Apostle John and his position of authority and, and 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 as a result he had lied about John and he had slandered him so what he was doing was he's trying to stack the deck and and win the day and he would stop at nothing to get his way even if it meant lying and acting with a with a heavy hand and i've seen this in churches i've seen it even in churches that i pastored where people attacked me and said things just were that were completely lies about me in order to try to tear down my leadership because they wanted something different than what i was the vision that God had given me. And, and so we, he's saying, you, you just can't go that way. Just stay away from that. Number four, do not dominate with profane activity. Now, I want you to notice here the progression uh, of Diotrephes' behavior. Ambition led to arrogance, which then led to accusations culminating in actions. He, he acted exactly the opposite of Gaius but then he went further. He slandered John. As I said, he gave the cold shoulder to these missionaries from John. He stopped others who, who would have received them, and he kicked out of the church anyone who attempted to help, attempted to help them, all because he loved himself, and he loved his agenda, and, and he had to have his own way no matter what. Prideful ambition, pompous arrogance, perverse accusations, profane activity— All of these are still very real dangers for Christians and for church leaders today. Therefore, we must watch our motives. We've got to watch our decisions, watch our tongues, and watch our actions. A a, a true Christian leader is a servant, not an autocrat. Uh, And Jesus, in fact, gave us the prescription for greatness in his kingdom in Mark 9.35. He said, if anyone wants to be first... Boy, Diotrephes needed to hear this. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Diotrephes forgot that. The true Christian leader must always remember that strength and gentleness must go together and that leading and loving go hand in hand. Let's go to our third man, Demetrius, verses 11 and 12. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does, does uh, what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. So John sandwiches you know, evil diatrophies between godly Gaius and a good man named Demetrius. And a, a man like, Demi, like uh, Diotrephus uh, can, can be an impressive man. They can be very charismatic. They can build a following. They can gather supporters who admire them or even idolize them. And John was aware of that. And so he, 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 he knew that we all imitate someone. And he's saying, be careful who you admire. Make, make sure that it's someone like Gaius or someone like Demetrius. Uh, So he says to pursue a godly example. After calling Gaius, dear friend, for the fourth time, John says in verse 11, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Now, this command is a present imperative, and it just means it is calling for continuous action. And the word imitate, he says you should be constantly imitating. Don't, don't, Don't be looking at the bad, but looking at the good. But, but the, uh, the word imitate is related to our word mimic. So, so why imitate or mimic one, the good, or, or, and not the other, the bad? Well, he, he very simply puts it like this. Whomever you imitate or mimic gives evidence to whom you belong. You see, the, the one who does what is good is from God that's verse 11 and he he and by doing that he gives evidence that he belongs to God and in contrast the one whose life is characterized by evil gives evidence that he is lost that he as, or as John says that he has not seen God and ultimately ultimately think about this ultimately we should imitate Jesus right he's our supreme example and he's never going to fail us but but the truth is We all need earthly everyday examples to imitate as well. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as we don't idolize them. Paul himself said at one point in time, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. He said in places, he said, you saw my example, now live that way. So, uh, so it's not bad to have a, a, you know, earthly human being who's living out the truth, who's following Christ that you can look to and say, okay, that's what it means. To follow it and to do live this out in the flesh. Uh, but but we need men and women to whom we can point our sons and daughters and our you know our boys and girls, and we can say, go and live like him, and or go and be like her. We need those kind of people uh, that our children can see that are living the truth out. So the, tr- the, what that means for us is we should strive to be those kind of people. We should strive to, to be such examples. So be careful whom you watch and who you look up to, who you admire, who you imitate, and also be mindful of who watches you because somebody's watching your life. Second thing, possess a good testimony. Demetrius uh, was probably the one who actually brought this letter to Gaius. It probably wasn't intended specifically to be an introductory letter for Demetrius, but in the process of carrying it and giving it to him. Uh, the letter would serve as a recommendation from from John, and, and a threefold witness is put forward to commend him in, in, in verse 12. He has a good testimony or a witness from everyone, from the truth itself and from John and his community. So what's happened? Over time, people have watched this man Demetrius, and they have found him to be a man of integrity and godliness. See, this is the thing about a godly reputation. There aren't any shortcuts. They have watched him over time. Now they give witness to what they have seen. This is what has to happen in our lives. Um, Like Gaius, what he believed and what he lived were in harmony. They were were beautifully balanced. Now, it's doubtful that everyone agreed with his commitment to Christ or with Christian truth. You know, that didn't happen. There were still persecutions, just like today. Not everybody in the world agrees with your commitment to Christ. Not, not everybody agrees with Christian truth today, right? And that was the same for Demetrius. But John was saying this man lives with such integrity that his life is above, above reproach and he's beyond question. You can trust him. What you see is what you get. This man's the real deal. He, he walked with God. He studied his word. He loved Jesus and he loved people both saved and unsaved. And he was he was a man that I could point my children to and say, be like him. I think the question for for us is, could I point my children to you and say, be like them? Or could you point your children to me and say the same thing? Then We're going to close with the last man, and he's not specifically mentioned, but the last man is John himself. Because he's, you see him all through these letters. Verses 13 and 14. I have much to write you, but I do not w- want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Interesting, by the way, this is the only place in all the scripture where Christians are called friends. Uh, which also harkens back to, in my mind, to Jesus saying, uh, no greater love than then does any man have than this, than the man lay down his life for his friends? And he said, and you are my friends. Throughout this letter, John, through positive and negative examples, has, has painted a portrait of good, godly leadership. And he has shown us the importance of, of a balance of belief and behavior that is necessary if we're to be faithful witness for, witnesses for King Jesus, that we have to live the truth out. And in the process, he has revealed his pastor's heart. And as he brings this letter to a close, that heart of love and compassion continues to shine. And he he tells us to desire the presence of fellow believers. We learn this from his example. With, With a full heart and even a burdened heart, John says he longs to come and visit Gaius and his friends. He says, I want to see you face to face. The literal translation of that is actually mouth to mouth, but that doesn't come across very well in English. The idea is, uh, is that is that it's in person. He, 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 when he comes, he said he will embrace Gaius and he will confront Diotrephes. And he says that pen and ink are nice. They're great, but they're not enough. John wanted to see them. He, he, he hoped to see them soon. He could hardly wait until later to see them. He wanted a face-to-face, up-close, and personal time together. And I think, you know, I'm going to take time this, this week because we talked some about it last week, but I think the, the great application for us is, is you know, in, in, there, there's people today, there's talk of online cyber churches and there's live streaming and these sort of things, and it all sounds great, it sounds convenient, sounds intriguing, Uh, and And they're good for certain situations and for certain people and for certain stages of your walk with Christ, I would even say. But they can never be a substitute for the personal touch. They can never substitute coming together with the people of God. It's like the illustration I used last week. You can watch a fire burning on your TV. And when you do that, you can see the light, but you can't ever feel the warmth. That's the difference between watching a live stream and being in a church service. And, and in that way, and this is something this generation doesn't understand very well, the current generation, that is that a letter, an email, a text, those things are poor substitute for personal interactions. That There are many things you can do very easily with a text, but you know what? If you really want to impact a person's life, there are some things that have to be said and done face to face. The other thing was that we should desire peace for fellow believers. John closed um, with an expression of peace, something that, that the, the whole Diotrephes affair had rubbed, uh, robbed them of. To, to accentuate that, that blessing, John told Gaius, Gaius that the friends here send their greetings. They, they knew the situation, uh, what was going on with Diotrephes, and they stood with John, but, he, but also they stood with Gaius. And finally, John asked Gaius, and I love this. I love this. We're going to close with this. He asked him to say say hello to everyone. One by one, he said, say hello to everyone by name. He knew them. And, and, And like John, who reflected the heart of God, because how did God save us? He didn't save us as a group, did he? One by one, person by person. We too should love and care in the same manner, one by one, one person at a time, get to know people, find out what their names are, work at remembering them, which is not always easy to do. (laughs) Older I get, the harder it is, but it's important to do. So is to cultivate a good reputation. It's to communicate to people that they are truly loved because there's something powerful about your name being used. And to do so is to live a life that brings praise to the name of Jesus. And that's what this is all about. My life, giving praise to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the examples of these men, both negative and positive. Because we learn from all of them. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to learn from Gaius and from Demetrius and even from John to... Make sure that our actions always match up what we say we believe. God, I pray you'd help us to partner with missionaries around the world and that we would be intentional about that, that we would, it's not about just supporting somebody else, but it's about us doing our part in the partnership of the gospel. And God, I pray that you would help us to take seriously this call to relationship, the being together, getting to know people, encouraging one another one-on-one. And Lord, that as we do that, that your light would shine through us in greater and greater ways. And we give you praise for all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.